Heavenly Father, tonight we certainly know our need for you as the one who is speaking tonight Lord I know that every word spoken carries weight and accountability and the truth be known it's very difficult to speak with that reality on you so Lord tonight we just would ask that you would attend to our time that we might see Christ for who he is and the way in which you have orchestrated the grace of our salvation in him so open our ears open our minds And open our hearts to the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you would open your Bibles with me to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, as we continue our study of the trial of Jesus Christ. It has been um, fascinating, really, for me to look into the history of all that surrounded the time of Jesus Christ's trial, his arrest, eventually his crucifixion, and the, the fantastic irony that God used the system by which all intents and purposes, as we'll see again tonight, should have freed Jesus Christ from any charge. And yet God used it, as Acts tells us, at the hands of wicked men, so that we might know that He is the Christ and that we might be saved by Him. So I guess maybe in the title of this series of messages, there's a sense of irony in the fact that the greatest perversion of justice is on God, by God. Because God used the system that He designed for the Jews by which His Son should have been freed and yet was condemned. It's fascinating to look at that and for us to fit that into the purpose for which John wrote to us in John chapter 20 verse 31 he wrote this as we have heard over and over and over again that we might understand that Jesus is the Christ he is clearly showing us that reality and so I want us to kind of think of that over our time tonight as we have thought about it in the past, and I want us to keep that in our mind as we think about it in the future. Jesus is the Christ. I mean, that's what we share the gospel for. That's what we tell people about him for, because he is the Christ. We heard it tonight. Unless you believe that Jesus is God, it really doesn't matter what you believe about Jesus. If he's not God, then it doesn't matter. 
And everything that John writes shows us that he is in fact that. Even Jesus Christ's words himself to those who are trying him in his own trial speak to that very end. And so I want to just look at the facts again tonight a little bit as we were deluged with them last Lord's Day concerning the trial of Jesus Christ from that series of books that I I told you about, The Trial of Jesus from a Lawyer's Perspective. Uh, You can get that on on Amazon if you want. It's uh, pretty inexpensive paperbacks, but if you want Kindle version, they're free. Uh, Fascinating reading. And so tonight I want us to just focus our attention a little bit, uh, just as a jumping off point, really, in verses 19 to 24. And someone might be asking, well, why are we going to 19? We didn't even finish 15 through 18. And that's true, but we'll get back to those another time. Tonight I just want to kind of use 19 to 24 to kind of launch off into our time for tonight. And John says this for us, The high priest therefore questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. By the way, the word question there in verse 19 and the word question in verse 21 where Jesus is saying, Why do you question me? That's, that's the word for interrogation. It's where we get our word. The Greek word is the word, the root word by which we get our word interrogation. These weren't just simple little questions. This was an interrogation. The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, which in and of itself is an irony. They knew about it. And Jesus answered him, I've always spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. I spoke to the world in the open. I spoke in the synagogues. I spoke in the temple where all the Jews are. And in fact, I didn't ever say anything in secret. Why do you question me? And of course, when I read that with the tone in my voice, I certainly don't assume that Jesus had that tone in his voice. But why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. Behold, these know what I said. A divine poke right in the eyeball of the Pharisee, Annas, who was questioning him. If you don't know what I said, they do. And when he had said this, one of the officers standing by gave Jesus a blow, saying, Is that any way you is that the way you answer the high priest? I don't know about you, but that's a frightening verse if you're the guy who hit Jesus, isn't it? How would you like to be known throughout all history slapping the Savior? And yet, in one sense, that's exactly what we've done. Before we were saved, we slapped Jesus all the time. Jesus answered him, if I have spoken wrongly, then bear witness of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? Annas therefore sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. To say that we live in a country where justice is championed and desired would be an understatement. We, we live in the United States. Our, Judas, our, our, our jurisprudence system is, 
admired by all the rest of the world in many ways. Our very own country proclaims to have been founded, in fact, on principles of not being found guilty without confirmation. We all know the line, you are innocent until proven guilty. You're innocent until, until we can prove it, until you're proven guilty. That's the standard. That's the ideal. And yet we know full well that that standard is not always met. In fact, even within our own society, there are actually two courts. I'm not talking about courts like lower courts and higher courts, but there are two court systems, if you will. There is the court where trials happen, where the standard is attempted to be maintained and attempted to be upheld by the rule of law. And then there is the other court, the court that we know about so well, especially in our day and age, the court of public opinion. And that court, the court of public opinion, voices its agreement with the standard of you're not guilty until proven guilty. They acquiesce to that in words, but the reality is that being proven guilty is where public opinion steps in and takes over. Because in the court of public opinion, there is no trial. There's only a verdict. Public opinion just hands out verdicts. And rarely, if ever, are they ever based on fact. Nor are they ever really ever proven. And yet, even with all of that, we still expect justice to be served in some way. When we read John's portion here of the trial of Jesus Christ, or at least the beginning of the trial of Jesus Christ, we hope to find justice happening, don't we? I mean, you read this, you go, justice is happening. There should be justice happening. I mean, shouldn't this actually be whereby Jesus should be just acquitted and let go? But what we actually find are the laws governing the case broken so often that it's even difficult to see how it could get any worse, really. Now, last Lord's Day, as we were here, I mentioned the procedural aspects of this case, at least according to Jewish law. And it was fascinating to hear how the trial was supposed to go. If you didn't weren't here last Sunday night, get that online or whatever, it's there. You can hear all of that or just buy the books and read those two books or read the first one. That's the first volume. They're only about 400 pages each. You should be able to get through that in a weekend or something. But even in doing all of that, even in me rehearsing some of that to us and giving us that, we could see that trouble was on the horizon when it came to justice being served. And so tonight, I just want to highlight some of that by way of its injustice in the judicial activity behind what we see happening here, even in John chapter 18, verses 19 to 24. You remember, in the Jew, under Jewish law, the first thing that took place in any kind of trial was the arrest. It's just like in our 
system. You cannot have a trial unless you have an arrest. If there isn't someone on trial, then there is no trial. For any criminal trial to take place, there has to be a criminal. You have to have an arrest. Even when someone is supposedly a criminal and they can't find them to arrest them, there is no trial. They don't have a trial. They're just waiting around in hopes that they might arrest a person. Even under our legal system, that's the case. And even under our legal system, bad arrests can happen. And when bad arrests happen, the case is thrown out. Well, in the case of Jesus Christ, in the case of his arrest, at least three errors occurred. There were at least three errors in the arrest of Jesus Christ, according to Jewish law and how it was supposed to go. The first thing was it was at night. He was arrested at night. That is an error according to the law. Everything according to Jewish law, especially when it became a capital offense, had to be done in the daytime. So it occurred at night. Let me, let me just list these three for us, and then we'll talk a little bit about each one of them. The arrest was at night. The arrest was at the hands of a traitor. That, too, was against the law. And third, the arrest came without any necessary formal accusation, no indictment that was presented to the court. No formal accusation given to the court by which this arrest should have even happened. And all of these should have resulted in an immediate acquittal of Jesus Christ, which is an irony, like I said, from the very beginning. Here is God's system being broken by the very people who are to uphold the system, the lawbreakers, arresting the innocent one, all because God desires this to happen. Well, the first thing was he was arrested at night. Having a capital trial by night was an established and inflexible rule in Jewish law. Inflexible. It was not to happen. And that rule not only applied to the trial itself, the outworkings of how the trial went, that rule applied to the trial couldn't be at night, but all of the events that led up to the trial and all of that that included in it, which would include the arrest. In a capital offense case, nothing like that could have been done at night. So it's clear that Jesus' arrest was at night. We know that because they came to him in the garden with torches and lanterns. No one needs a torch to see in the daytime. It was sufficiently dark so that they needed the aid of artificial light. The arrest was a truncated arrest at night. The law said that all things were to be done in the light, meaning that all things were to be clearly seen, open in the eyes of God as it was intended to be in the minds of the people. So to do something in the dark was interpreted to mean that something was being hidden. Just that alone said something was shady. And that's what we see here. So the arrest was at night. And on that fact alone, Jesus should have been let go. The arrest was illegal. In a court of law, even in our country, the judge, if the arrest is illegal, the judge says, and everything that came from that time is thrown out. 
But the arrest was also illegal based upon the role of Judas in the arrest. The Old Testament law of Leviticus says that a person, in Leviticus 19 verse 16, it is not, a person is not to go about spreading slander among the people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. It says in Leviticus 19 verse 16. Don't go around spreading slander. Don't go around doing something that might endanger your neighbor's life. That was a law for every Jew. And that meant that a witness had to be of such a character, as I said before, for the, the, the uh, vetting of a witness to ensure that a witness was of the right case. They had to be of certain character that meant that a witness was of such a character that they would never be con- a contrived witness against any other person. In other words, they couldn't be someone who they just found on the street and said, oh yeah, I heard this guy say that. Or yeah, I was... Saw this guy behind the house when this happened. They were never to take a bribe. A witness could never be a witness if they were a person who took a bribe. Of course, we know the circumstances surrounding Judas. They could never, in fact, be an accomplice to the person being accused. Of course, Judas was all of those. Judas was all of those. So it was illegal for him to have been used in that way at the arrest of Jesus. It was illegal. It was an illegal arrest just on that alone. Remember last time when the arrest happened under Jewish law? The accuser, according to the Jewish Talmud, Mishnah, and Gemara, which is their codified law, according to that law, the accuser was to be the one who led the arrest. The accuser in the courtroom was to be the one who led the arrest. And that was only to happen after the accuser applied, remember the law, the rule of antecedent warning. Remember that? Antecedent warning was that warning that pre- that, that was to preempt any kind of crime being, being committed that might be serious enough for a capital case, the accuser who was to stand before the court and do the accusing was to give an antecedent warning to the one who was committing the so-called crime. So therefore, Judas would have had to be the one to tell Jesus, hey, Jesus, don't do that. To do that, you're going to commit a capital offense. And for Jesus then to say to Judas, I know it's a capital offense. I don't care about Jewish law. I'm doing it anyway. That's antecedent warning. In fact, in his book, Walter Chandler says, The arrest of Jesus was ordered upon the supposition that Jesus was a criminal. This same supposition would have made Judas who had aided, encouraged, and abetted Jesus in the propagation of his faith, an accomplice. And if Judas was not an accomplice, then Jesus was innocent. And his arrest was an outrage, and therefore illegal, unquote. Judas was in fact an accomplice to the final charged crime he was an accomplice to it he went around spreading and propagating that very message to others around 
He spent two, over two years with Jesus. Saying that Jesus was God. He was there when Jesus came out of the water. And John the Baptist had baptized Jesus. And therefore he couldn't be a viable accuser. So was it night? That's illegal. The accuser wasn't even the accuser in court. He was bribed by the chief priests. And he was an accomplice to Jesus. He couldn't be an accuser. Therefore, that made it illegal. And then thirdly, the arrest was illegal because there was no formal accusation from the arresting party. Which Jewish law clearly called for. Judas should have been the one standing in the courtroom before the Sanhedrin with Jesus right there standing in his place making the accusation to the Sanhedrin in advance of the arrest of Jesus Christ and then at the trial. And only after the antecedent warning had gone out from Judas. None of that was done. Instead, the preliminary hearing in front of Annas was used to just get some kind of viable accusation against Jesus Christ. In other words, arrest this guy, go arrest this guy, we'll figure out the crime later. That was the idea. Go arrest that guy, we don't like him anyway. You can see that coming all through the Gospel of John and the other Gospel writers. They're angry with Jesus, they want to find a way that they can catch him in some kind of snare so they can get rid of him. And so that's the idea. Go get that guy, we'll find the crime to pin on him when we get him. So it's illegal from the start. The arrest is illegal. But there's a second illegality in the trial of Jesus Christ, and that is the preliminary questioning that took place. Right? You have the arrest. That's the first thing that happens. And then you have this preliminary questioning. And it's in the verses that I read for us tonight. The high priest, therefore, is questioning Jesus. This is Annas. Remember, this is the the high priest that the Jewish people would have recognized as the high priest. Not the puppet high priest of Caiaphas, who is the son-in-law of Annas. But he's the... This is Annas, the Jewish recognized high priest by the people. High priest was a, was a title and a position for life. It was never, you were never not a high priest. Once you were a high priest, Annas is a high priest. But Caiaphas is the high priest that has been put in position by the Roman government because they somehow must have not had a relationship very kindly with Annas. And so Caiaphas is that. But this is the questioning before Annas, the preliminary questioning. And since the arrest was done illegally, we can understand why they had to have this kind of interrogation. They're looking for something to pin on Jesus Christ. That's what the word means here in, as I said, in verse 19 and verse 21. The word question, it's an interrogation. They're interrogating Jesus Christ so that they might find something that they can pin on him. They had no real case against Christ. And so this was their means through which they could secure a valid accusation. And that from the words of Jesus himself. And so this questioning was illegal from several vantage points as well. The arrest was illegal for those three things that I mentioned. And the questioning was illegal for several reasons. One, just like the arrest, that too was done at night. 
That, that was a no-no according to Jewish law. Not only could the arrest not be done at night, but everything attached to a capital case could not be done at night. Secondly, it was being done by a single judge. This questioning was being done by a judge alone, Annas. He was by himself, had the guards around, but as far as the judicial aspect of it, he was the only judge which was strictly forbidden again in Jewish law. Especially in these kinds of things. In the Mishnah it said this, quote, Be not a sole judge, for there is no sole judge but one. Unquote. Meaning God. Don't ever stand in the place where you're the only judge acting because there's only one who can do that, and that is God Himself. The Mishnah said that. They're codified law. And yet here is Annas doing that. This was a serious violation of the law. And then thirdly, the accused person was never compelled in a capital case to testify against themselves for any reason. And so Jesus is completely within his legal Jewish rights here in verses 20 and 21 to be asking them the questions and give no answer to their very question. He's perfectly within his legal rights. I mean, that alone should have been enough for them to just say, we don't have anything. See you later. Ta-ta for now. We'll catch you another time. And as I was reading this, I was thinking through this, I thought to myself, doesn't it seem strange that the one person on trial, Jesus Christ, is the only one who is attempting to apply the law? It's just another example to us that Jesus was not a victim to the sad moment of history. He's not a victim. He's a willing Follower of the will of his Father. If anything speaks to the Christness of Christ, that does. Here is Jesus Christ in front of Annas being questioned by the high priest who is breaking the law, standing right in front of him. And Jesus is the only one saying, Doesn't, this, doesn't the law say this? Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. In other words, go get the accuser. Why am I the one standing here in front of you being questioned by you? Go get the accuser. Isn't that what the law says? Of course, one of the officers there standing by thinks that's a rude comment to make and he slaps Jesus upside the head. What restraint of God himself incarnate to not just go, really? See ya. And the guy's dust. If I have spoken wrongly, then bear witness of the wrong. If I've done something wrong, then please, level the accusation. But if I've spoken rightly, why is there judgment on me? The only one trying to apply the law is the accused. God himself. The arrest is illegal. The preliminary questioning is illegal. And then thirdly, the charge against him was illegal. 
The charge against him was illegal. None of the things that Jesus had claimed were ever done in secret. He says, I've spoken openly. I've been all over the place. I've been in the places of the synagogues. I've been in the temple area. I've, I've, I've been the places where all Jews are at. There's nothing I've spoke in secret. The full Sanhedrin, every single one of them knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. They already knew that he claimed to be the Son of God. They had heard him say it. They had picked up stones in the past in order to try to throw them at him to take care of him then. They knew exactly what he was claiming. They knew that if the claim wasn't true, then he truly was a blasphemer. They knew that if he was actually a blasphemer, that was punishable by death. That's what the law required. They knew all of that. In fact, we can go so far to say that they heard him make such a claim in the past. We know that to be true. And they did nothing about it. They didn't bring him into the court. They, in effect, became themselves accomplices. To the so-called crime of claiming that Jesus was God. Because they did nothing. And therefore they couldn't even be, according to the law, reliable witnesses. So there was never a formal indictment against Jesus. Formally, in the right way, according to the, the rules of Jewish or, or jurisprudence in, Jeru in uh, the Jewish legal system. That should have been the case if the arrest was legal, but it wasn't. It should have been the case if it was presented by the witness at the beginning of the trial, but that didn't happen until there was no formal charge. There was no legal formal charge against Jesus. Yes, they made plenty of public opinion charges, but no formal legal charge was ever leveled against Jesus Christ. In fact, even in the Roman trial, as we'll see as we go on, Pilate said, I don't find any guilt in this man. Instead, they spend their whole time trying to find some kind of viable witness. That's what they spend their time doing. In fact, we know this from the recording of the gospel accounts that the first attempts at trying to find viable witnesses were thrown out of court. Which is really ironic to me in the sense of what is happening legally in this whole system. In light of the illegality of all of it as it goes down the line, in some moment of sheer insane clarity in their fallen minds there appears to be some legal sense legal thread that they're trying to hold on to by which a witnesses false witnesses come together they can't be corroborated so they throw them out it's only after several attempts that a charge is finally secured and that's not on the basis of the witnesses that's simply on the basis of the words of Jesus Christ as he replies to the direct questioning of Caiaphas. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 26 for a moment just so we can hear these words. 
Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 59. Well, I'll pick it up in 57. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas. That's after he was at Annas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. So now here's the Sanhedrin in its semi-official capacity. But Peter was also following with him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And he entered in, sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus in order that they might put him to death. And they didn't find any. That just simply means that people were coming forward who were saying things, but remember, witness testimony had to fully cooperate on every detail. It wasn't a piece here, a piece there, like in our court system, where a conglomerate of witnesses can come together and make the whole picture. No, in the Jewish legal system, the witnesses had to have every detail, and all those details had to match. And if they missed in any kind of detail, they were thrown out as being false witnesses. They didn't find any even though many false witnesses came forward. So they're having a hard time. But later, two came forward and said, this man stated, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Which is not what Jesus said. Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. He did John even explains he was speaking about his body. So these weren't even the words that Jesus said. And the high priest stands up and says to him, Do you, this is the high priest speaking to the accused, Do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? Jesus does what every good accused person would do who is innocent. They stand silent. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Oh, isn't that nice? I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus speaks up. You have said it yourself. <laughs> I love that. You know what he's saying there? You're an accomplice to the fact. You just said it yourself. You know who I am. But I'll tell you. Hereafter you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tears his robe saying, He has blasphemed! What need do we have for witnesses? Behold, you heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And he answered, He's deserving of death. And they, this is the Sanhedrin, they spit in his face and they beat him with their fists. Another slapped him and they said, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that hit you? What restraint of God? What restraint of God? John says Jesus is the Christ. Is there anything else that could prove to you that Jesus is the Christ and that? None of us would take that. We would be fighting for our lives. Jesus says nothing. 
It was Annas. Wasn't him, wasn't Caiaphas' job to question the accused. That's not what they did as judges in a capital case. In fact, according to Jewish law, that was strictly out of order. They were never to do that. They were not allowed to express an opinion. They were not allowed to interrogate the accused at all. They were not allowed to ask a question of the witness. All they were allowed to do was to sit there and be quiet. And even when the vote was taken as to whether the person was guilty or not, the high priest was to vote last. So as not to influence any of the underlings who were under him as to the way in which the decision would go. And so Annas and Caiaphas both violated all of those rules by what they did. So the arrest was illegal. The preliminary hearing was illegal. The charge against him was illegal. And then the trial itself was illegal. You say, why? Well, first, like all of those other things, it was conducted before the morning sacrifice. It was conducted at night. It was early in the morning when they brought him to Caiaphas, sometime after midnight, so it was early in the morning. And that was against the law. But it was also conducted on the day before a Jewish Sabbath. And for capital cases, that was never to be done. And then it all finished within 24 hours. A 24-hour period of time, seemingly. Short hours. Convictions in capital cases took at least two days. The conviction was not based on witness testimony. It was only based on the testimony of the accused. And the conviction was based upon a unanimous decision of the court. And by Jewish law, that made it invalid. So at the time that Judas came to them, there was no legal way to have a trial. By the time Judas left the evening from the dinner in John chapter 13 and went to the high priest in order to orchestrate this event, there was no legal way for them to have a trial. There just wasn't enough time. And so Chandler writes in his book this, quote, The determination to arrest and try Jesus at night in violation of law became the parent of nearly every legal outrage that was committed against him. The selection of the midnight hour for such a purpose resulted not merely in a technical infraction of law, but rendered it impossible to do justice either formally or substantially under the rules of Hebrew criminal procedure. Unquote. In other words, everything was wrong. And as we heard last Lord's Day, according to Jewish law, we know no work can be done on the Sabbath. That's Jewish law. It was the day of rest. But a trial was work. And so would be the execution of the sentence upon the guilty person if they so were convicted of the crime. And so in a capital case, it can never be held 
the day before a Sabbath. Why? Because in the case of a conviction, it would take at least two days for that conviction to happen, which meant that you would be working on the Sabbath. They were always angry at Jesus for doing things on the Sabbath, according to their words, but they were more than ready to work on the Sabbath to get him to the cross. And so if a trial... Conviction and execution of penalty couldn't be finished prior to the Sabbath. Then it was postponed. Or it wasn't held at all. And on top of that, if that's not enough, Jesus wasn't only tried on the day before the Sabbath, it was also on a feast day. You say, what does that mean? Well, the Feast of Unleavened Bread had already begun. Remember, they had their Passover meal the night before. That whole week was the feast week. Hence the supper room, supper in the upper room. So it was illegal because of that. And thirdly, it was completed within 24 hours. Capital cases, like I said, took at least two days. Usually more than that if some little shred of, of disparity was, could be found in the case in which they could bring it back in and, and ask more questions of the accused, or I mean of the, uh, the witness, because the judges were the people who were the defenders. They were the ones who were looking for a way to get the guy off. That was their job. And yet the first day here was the main trial. In a capital case, you had the first day, the main trial, then the court was adjourned uh, for the night to contemplate the upcoming decision. And then on the second day, when they regathered together, they would reconvene, take, take the final vote after they would discuss all of those things, after having a night of prayer and a night of fasting, all the time reconsidering the evidence of the case in hopes of finding some point at which they could acquit the accused. You might read in some commentaries, some will try to say, well, he actually did have two trials. He had one before Annas and he had one before Caiaphas. And yes, that's true in some sense if you want to get very, very technical with the details of the timing of it all. But neither of those were held in accordance with law. And the time between those was such a few few hours at best, let alone 24 hours. None of them re-examined the case itself that they might acquit Jesus. And then finally, it was in a unanimous vote. We read it in Matthew. It was a unanimous vote. They all said he should die. In fact, Mark 14, verse 64 says it this way. They all condemned him as worthy of death. All of them. And that kind of law... If it was unanimous vote, it was immediate acquittal. Because under Jewish law, that was a vote of emotion. That was, that was what we see in public opinion reaction. It's, it's mob rule. That's really what it is. That seems strange to us, especially in our country where we thrive on the jurisdiction of unanimous everything, right? If it's unanimous, it must be right. If it's unanimous, that's the way we're going. Unanimous vote is the way we happen in this country. We live in a majority rule country. 
And if it's unanimous, that only makes it better in this country. So we think it's strange that the Jews would have this idea that if it was unanimous, throw it out. But Chandler describes it this way, quote, In the first place, there were no lawyers or advocates in the modern sense among the ancient Hebrews. So when you were in court, there's no lawyers there. There's no one arguing your case on both sides. The judges were the defenders. And if the verdict was unanimous in favor of condemnation, it was evident that the prisoner had no friend or any defender in the court. To the Jewish mind, this was almost equivalent to mob violence. It argued for conspiracy at the very least. The element of mercy which was required to enter into every Hebrew verdict was absent in such a case of unanimity like that. Unquote. So we could sit around and debate the wisdom of such a rule. The fact is that this was the law at the time. And it was violated at every level. So there was a bad arrest, a bad first Jewish trial, a corrupt second Jewish trial, all illegal, illegal in every way, especially in the fact that Jesus had no defenders. Now you can say, well, wasn't John standing by? Wasn't Peter standing by? Yes, but they weren't allowed to say anything. There were no one coming to his defense. There, weren't, there wasn't anybody there who could, according to Jewish law, be asked, hey, do you think that's true about this guy? No, you had the accused and the accuser. And in this case, the accused is Jesus. The accusers are the judges who are to be the defenders of the accused. So all of legal rule required the judges to be defenders. All of precedent demanded it. Even in our justice system, a person has a right to be defended. Was there no person in all of Israel? No person in Jerusalem that night, that's for sure. No one who would testify credibly to the fact of who Jesus was. Some might even say, Even his disciples, but they couldn't do it under Jewish law. There was no, only the accuser, only the accused. And the judges in this case were both. They were to be the defenders, but they were the accusers. What they did was come to the court of public opinion. That's what they did. They threw out Jewish law for the sake of expediency of their own public and private opinion. There was plenty of evidence to confirm the validity of who Jesus was. Everybody knew it. His miracles were no secret. But what they were doing is the same thing that people do today with Jesus. That's what they do. I hear testimony tonight of people sharing the gospel with friends and family and co-workers and people they meet. And they do the same thing with Jesus. It's all about their public opinion. Jesus has proclaimed to be the Son of God. 
Time and time again, he's proven who he is. Time and time again, they see the reality of who he is through the miracle of a changed life that's sitting right in front of them. Even that person who is speaking right to them, they see that, they know it in their heart, and yet they, like a mob of humanity, they reject him. They don't even want to hear his defense. And for millions, when they stand before the throne of God, they will have no defense. They will have no defense. Why? Because they simply refuse to hear the truth. Just like Judas, just like Annas, just like Caiaphas, just like the rest of the multitude who were there that day. They refuse to hear the truth. Were they honest? Not at all. They were liars. Is it wise? No. Why? Because if Jesus is who he claimed to be, then it's a matter of eternal life or eternal death for each and every one of us, isn't it? If Jesus is who he said he is, and it's been proven time and time again by him, by what he said, by his miracles, by change lives of people if he's who he said he is then it's a matter of life and death eternally Jesus said I spoke nothing in secret you know what I said that was Jesus' defense you know what I said what's yours you don't know Christ what's yours you know what I said what's your defense John says Jesus is the Christ I wrote this that you might know that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you would have life in his name that's our only defense. Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the opportunity to hear from you. I trust that your word has sunk into our hearts, not just our ears. Forgive us for our foolishness, for our wickedness, for our hearts of rejection, rebellion, selfishness. The way in which we are, in many ways, like the crowd there that day. Accomplices to the crime. The Lord, you're gracious and you're merciful. Bounding in righteousness for all who would believe may we be like your son by the power of your spirit at times remaining silent at times saying what's needed all the while simply just doing what you've asked even if that costs us our life Thank you for your word. Glorify your name in and through it.
because of our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.